Amen. 
a.m. in the a.m. Good morning. Welcome to a Friday, everybody. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to a Friday era of Shabbos. We apologize. A drop late this morning because of a technical problem. These things do happen. A technical problem that took a few minutes to recover from. A big thank you, of course, to our chief engineer, ZK. Without his help, we would not be on the air right now. So big thank you to ZK. And we are ready to start. It's Friday morning on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim. Erev Shabbos Chazon with candle lighting in New York at 755. 73 degrees, mostly cloudy, a high of 84. The rain comes tomorrow in this area. Actually, late tonight to be more accurate. Uh, We are going to conclude... Uh, a lecture that we uh, started yesterday, it's um, Rabbi Beryl Wine and the second part of what he calls Europe's self-destruction. This is part number two of what he calls Europe's self-destruction. We will uh, do our best to complete this lecture and then uh, get to our news from Israel at the top of the hour. And of course, today is Friday, which means weekly update. Malcolm Honline is going to join us. He is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He'll join us coming up. 7.40 Eastern Time right here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine, the continuation of a lecture entitled Europe's Self-Destruction. This is JM in the AM. You know, whatever it is today, it's not as bad as it was. You have to believe me. Though it's pretty bad today, too. You know, the uh, rabbi that had to give the eulogy to a person whom we could find nothing good to say about. So he got up and he said, but he was better than his brother. <laughs> so that's the situation we find. With all of our troubles, it's better than it was. Now, Rabbi Cook had an idea, the chief rabbinate. And that idea was supported by the British because the British had a chief rabbi in England. The British always wanted to be able to deal not with the Jews as a whole, but with particular Jews who would somehow uh, take care of the rest. And therefore, they supported the idea of the chief rabbinate. And uh, it was established, in fact, it was established Purim Cotton in 1925. Rav Cook had great ideas for it, uh, some of which... Uh, were fulfilled, many of which remain unfulfilled. The uh, Ger Hasidim, the Rebbe encouraged them to come to Israel. That's why Ger is the largest Hasidus and most uh, politically powerful. But they, So there was a slow increase in Jewish immigration to the country, but the religious immigration was uh, on a much more moderate scale than, uh, let us say, the leftist uh, immigration into the country. But the question of what to do with the Arabs, that never really came to any head. In 1926, there were riots. In 1929, there were riots. In In the 1930s, in 1936. So it forced England... uh, to come up with a uh, another solution and uh, they uh, created a commission that met in 1936 it was headed by a man lord peels peel and therefore was called the peel commission and they came to the brilliant conclusion 
that the country cannot support more than a population of two and a half million people. In other words, economically, agriculturally, uh, the country can, and we're talking about all of uh, Palestine, the West part, can't control more than two and a half, can't, can't, it's not viable. I mean, you don't realize, you know, they, the Bureau of Statistics says there, there are eight and a half million people living in Israel. But they said it can't support more than two and a half million people. And because of that, therefore, they said, as a humanitarian gesture, we have to curtail immigration. Now, this 1936 is three years after Hitler comes to power. Now, Hitler came to power in a uh, wild series of events. The Nazi party... uh, never won a majority at the elections, but it did win a plurality in 1929. And in 1931, now, when the Nazis, uh, this is a parliamentary government, and the Nazis came to the parliament, they didn't let anybody else speak. They were thugs. There were riots in the parliament. Now, if anything, uh, there were riots on the streets. You had the brown shirts which was a militia, and it fought, and the communists fought them openly in the streets. If there's anything the Germans can't stand is disorder. (laughs) So Hitler said, I'll bring order. Well, he's going to bring order. So that's, that's what we need. Now Hitler had written out in his book, Mein Kampf, everything that he was going to do, and he followed it to the letter. And no one can say that they didn't know what was coming. The only thing that could be said was that he was such a madman that who could believe that that he would ever come to power? But we are witness to the fact that all sorts of strange things happen. And uh, the uh, German president, von Hindenburg, who was the general, the hero of World War One, so... Uh, he appointed originally in 33 a man by the name of Franz von Papen to be the Chancellor of Germany. Uh, von Papen was a, an elegant diplomat, a banker, but he was a man of no principles. And he ruled for about three or four months. And uh, he came up with the brilliant idea that we should take Hitler into the government, into the cabinet. The mistake that everyone made with Hitler was that they said they were going to control him. So, for instance, the German industrialists backed him, the German bankers backed him, because he was going to bring about order, and they would, uh, you know, they would uh, see to it that the excesses did not happen. Hitler comes, is appointed finally chancellor. I mean, von Hindenburg said that little corporal, but he eventually appointed that little corporal as the chancellor of Germany. And you have pictures of Hitler for the first time in a business suit, not wearing a uniform, not wearing the Nazi band. When he comes to power, just to show you how, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how to, how to put it, it's, uh, but uh, the rabbinic organizations of Germany all sent him letters of congratulation. Because they were German.
Now, Hitler uh, was in a parliamentary government, in a coalition government, and he wanted to be the dictator. He wanted to be the autocrat, the only one. So how do you do that? So the Nazis uh, got hold of a mentally incompetent uh, Dutchman, and they used him to burn down the parliament building, the Reichstag, the famous Reichstag fire. And under the laws of Germany, it's a little like uh, 9-11, right? Under the laws of Germany, uh, there were certain emergency powers that the government could take in the event of such a national threat. And Hitler invoked uh, martial law for 90 days. Uh, but uh, the martial law lasted 12 years until his death. Never was revoked. There never would be another election in Germany. And he got rid of everybody else in the cabinet. He brought in only his Nazi cohorts. And he immediately began his anti-Semitic uh, role, just as he promised that he would. So there were boycotts of Jewish stores. Uh, there were uh, <laughs> universities uh, fired their Jewish professors. Hitler called uh, Einstein and uh, Oppenheimer and the other uh, Jewish scientists who could have given him the atomic bomb. You can imagine? Imagine Hitler with the atomic bomb. But he called that Jewish science. And Jewish science couldn't be true. And therefore, all of these people fled, and they made it American science. And uh, all the Jewish musicians were uh, fired from the Philharmonic, and that's how we got the Israeli Philharmonic. Just like today, the Israeli Philharmonic is the Moscow Philharmonic. <laughs> and it's going to be the French Philharmonic. And, yeah. <laughs> That's the way it goes. And the Lord's sense of humor is exquisite. It's never, never what we think is going to be. And uh, because of that, uh, he has now complete control of the country. And he creates uh, the brown shirts are one group. But he creates another group called the SS, the black shirts who are loyal to him, not to Germany, whose oath of allegiance is to the Fuhrer, not to Germany. And he finds people to run there. There are plenty of sadists running around. And the uh, first thing he did was purge the Nazi party of anybody whom he suspected. Now that's always the method of dictators. He admired Stalin how Stalin took care of anybody who he distrusted, and he imitated him. So there was uh, the Knight of the Long Knives, it was called, in which uh, hundreds of uh, Nazis, uh, Eric Rome, who was the head of the uh, brown shirts of the SA, they were all assassinated, and thousands were sent off to concentration camps. His own German uh, supporters... But that taught Germany a lesson that you don't oppose Hitler.
And from that time on, the 30s, there was absolutely no opposition to Hitler in Germany. And his slogan was, uh, Jews are our misfortune. Anything that's wrong in Germany is because of the Jews. We lost the war because of the Jews. The Versailles Treaty was the Jews. The reason there was unemployment that was the Jews. The reason that the, uh, we had inflation was that everything was the Jews. And the German people believed him. His original plan was that he was going to make Germany Judenrein. He's going to get rid of the Jews. He didn't say he's going to kill them all. He's going to make them Judenrein. He's going to send it away. The only problem was that you had to have somewhere to go. Most of the world was unwilling to accept Jewish refugees. The, the United States had a very severe quota, which did not allow uh, the British under the Peel Commission at the time when the Jews most needed a place to run to, uh, restricted immigration to uh, 15,000 a year. But Jews ran away, but most of them didn't run away far enough. They ran away to France and to Belgium and to Holland. Those that came to England had some safety. Switzerland wouldn't allow anybody in. Now, even though Mussolini was his ally and was part of the Axis, uh, the anti-Jewish decrees which existed in Italy were not really enforced until the Nazis took over in 1944. We have many instances in Italy of the local population saving its Jewish population, such as what happened in Rome. So uh, the Jews aren't going, or not enough of them are going. And uh, to leave, you had to, uh, the Nazis took everything away, nobody left with anything. There was a conference in a place called San Remo uh, in the late 1930s uh, regarding the refugee problem in which there were like over 60 countries participated, but nobody agreed to take anybody. Now, Europe today suffers from that conscience. And that's why, for instance, Angela Merkel of Germany is the leader in Europe of accepting refugees accepting Muslim refugees from Syria. But the rest of Europe is, as we can see, backtracking, and she just suffered a major electoral defeat because the people don't want it, so there's nowhere to go. But Hitler wanted to force them to go. So in 1938, in November, he organized a uh, nationwide pogrom called Kristallnacht, in which uh, 140 or more synagogues all over Germany were burned to the ground, uh, Jewish businesses were shattered, uh, Jewish homes and apartments were looted, uh, tens of thousands of Jews were rounded up and sent to concentration camps, and that shocked the world. But uh, didn't uh, nothing happened, and in the meantime, Hitler has keeping up the pressure 
so the first thing he did in 1936 is he forced the French to leave the Rhineland. The Rhineland was the uh, part of Germany that was occupied by France after World War I. Uh, it had a major industry there, armament industry. Uh, Germany under the treaty uh, Versailles was limited to what kind of weapons it could have and how big an army it could have. So interestingly enough, it was the Soviet Union that helped Germany avoid all of that because the Soviet Union wanted to undermine the capitalists. And therefore, uh, they helped train the German army and they helped them gain arms. Hitler forced... uh, uh, France to leave the Rhineland. Now, uh, Hitler later admitted, the German generals later admitted that if the French would have taken a broomstick, they could have stopped them. But as I mentioned, France had no stomach for it. None. And people said, well, the Treaty of Versailles was not really fair. Uh, Germany's entitled to its place in the sun. Then Hitler said, uh, well, uh, we want to reunite with Austria, the Anschluss. Austria, now it's interesting to note that many of the leading Nazis were not Germans, they were Austrians, Hitler included. Austria was more anti-Semitic than Germany. It certainly, in my opinion, remains so today. And Austria was able to portray itself as a victim in the war even though 97% of the Austrians voted for reunification with Hitler. Now, when the Germans come to Vienna, so they got a lot more Jews than they bargained for. Because many Jews from Poland, you know, it's hard to put all of this together, but I'm doing so well, so I'm sure you'll understand it. Now, Poland was terribly anti-Semitic as official policy of the government. Pilsudski and the other leaders of Poland, their official platform was anti-Semitism against the Jews. And Poland had a lot of Jews, it was 10% of the population. Hitler hated the Poles. He called them Untermenschen, subhumans. In fact, his hatred of the Slavs was almost as great as his hatred of the Jews. So Polish Jews, in some numbers, left Poland and went to Austria. They went to Vienna. Vienna had Hasidic Rebbes. You know, the Austrians saw these people for the first time, you know, with the fur hat in the middle of the summer. And uh, it was against Austrian culture. These were not people that were going to sit in the cafe and eat strudel. And they weren't going to visit the Belvedere Art Museum, etc. It was an enormous resentment. And uh, therefore, uh, Hitler uh, demanded that Austria reunite, and Austria did. When the Nazis came, they took the Hasidic Rebbes and had them scrub the streets, many times with acid in the water bucket. There's a famous story about a great Hasidic Rebbe, I forget his name, 
but it's recorded and it was in the newspapers here in Israel that they made him wash the street in front of the Viennese city hall so he uh, said to himself if the Lord will somehow get me out of this I take a vow that I will wash the street in front of the city hall in Tel Aviv and somehow he survived the Holocaust and came to Israel and he called up the newspaper I think it was Haaretz he called up the newspaper he said come tomorrow 10 o'clock in the city hall and he washed the steps of the city hall in Tel Aviv so uh, after Austria Hitler wants Czechoslovakia now Czechoslovakia was an artificial country the Czech part they're, they're all Bohemians the Slovakia part they're Slovaks they don't like each other they haven't liked each other for a long period of time and then there was another part called Sudetenland which was the southern part of Germany that was cut off and given to Czechoslovakia after the First World War they had about 5 million German speakers there and Hitler claimed listen these people belong in Germany they want to be reunited in Germany and the Nazis uh, propagandized and Czechoslovakia was not an easy sell like Austria the Czechs had a large army they had a wonderful defense fortress line and they had one of the largest armament works in Europe the Skoda Arms Works which later would help the Jews in the War of Independence here so uh, Czechoslovakia said no we're not going to give why should we give up our country to you part of the country to you but uh, by now England and France uh, were greatly frightened of Germany, of Hitler. They began to see that he meant what he said. So uh, they embarked on a policy which they called appeasement. Now, appeasement then did not have a bad name. Appeasement was a diplomatic policy. We see it in the world today, you know, where the world appeases Iran, North Korea, etc. Because you don't want to go to war. The problem is that people and countries put you in a corner where the only answer is war. And when that happens, so then uh, civilized countries, moderate countries, don't want to go to war. So uh, the Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, and the Prime Minister of France, uh, Reynaud, and Deladier agreed that uh, they met Hitler at Munich. Hitler wanted that the conference should be a bust, that they should say no, and then that would free him to invade Czechoslovakia with the German army. Hitler's generals advised him against all of these things. He said Germany is not ready for war. He can't take on the whole world. Hitler saw himself as a military genius, and he uh, was willing to roll the dice any time. 
So they came up with the Munich Agreement, which forced Czechoslovakia to give up what Germany asked. But Hitler promised that that's it. He doesn't want anything more. He has no more ambitions in Europe. It's all over. And you have the famous uh, clip of uh, Chamberlain landing at London's airport uh, with a waving a piece of paper with Hitler's signature on it that said, I have brought peace for our time. It has to be said in Chamberlain's uh, credit that within six months he realized that it was not peace for our time and he took began to take proper measures to prepare Britain for war, especially to build up its air force, to create the uh, fighter uh, planes, uh, the Spitfire and the pilots to fly it, that made the difference, that saved Britain and really began uh, to turn the tide against Hitler. By this time he was old and he was sick, he had uh, very serious disease uh, and he was ousted in the beginning in 1940 a, man, a member of parliament got up and literally said get out, out with you and uh, somehow Winston Churchill was appointed but that's a different story it's also can't no logic to it. Churchill had been in the political wilderness for 20 years. He was a liberal, he was a conservative, he was this, he was that. But he was the right man at the right place at the right time. So uh, then uh, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia anyway. And the Czechs by this time were deserted. France and England were not going to come to their aid, even though they had a treaty with them. Now Hitler says he wants Poland, because Poland is an artificial country, it's Slavic, and it has so many Jews. Now, uh, the Jews were suffering under Polish rule. Jews were beaten up on the street regularly, thrown off on trains. Anybody that tells you uh, all of these fanciful stories about uh, how great it was, you know, in the Alter Heim, it's all fantasy. It was terrible. The Jews were poverty-stricken, and then a large part of the Polish-Jewish population assimilated, attempting somehow to escape by becoming Polish. 70% of all Jewish children in Poland in 1936 attended Polish schools, not Jewish schools. And Poland was bitterly anti-communist because Poland and Russia had fought a war in 1921 and Poland defeated the communist army under Trotsky and sent them back to Russia. And therefore, they associated uh, the Jewish population with the Russian communists, with the Bolsheviks. They were not about to do much to save Jews. And the same thing would be true in in the Baltic states. Lithuania, bitterly anti Semitic. Estonia had a very small Jewish population. Latvia was perhaps the worst. 
we'll see later that uh, most of the uh, SS guards uh, were Latvians just as most of the communist uh, thugs were also Latvians and uh, you say Latvia today you know, what do we do we didn't do any we, we, we were victimized the Nazis, uh, Stalin you know we, uh, we were innocent the tragedy of Europe is that it does not face up to what it was and therefore it doesn't face up to what it is and therefore it has all of these wild policies especially as we'll discuss next time regarding uh, the state of Israel Europe is committed against the state of Israel any way that they could do it and that's again uh, almost subconsciously not realizing what is really happening and uh, what their uh, intent is in any event Hitler invades Poland 1939 the second world war comes and with it comes the Holocaust. In 1941, they have a conference in Wannsee, and they say there are 11 million Jews in Europe. We're going to kill them all. They were more than half right. But it was a planned progression because of all of these factors that drove them to these conclusions and they could not have done it without the cooperation of Europe without France without Poland without the Baltic states without the Ukrainians could not have been done they're all complicit in it and uh, we can uh, we can argue the point from here till tomorrow, but those are re- no, there's no doubt that those are the facts that are involved. So uh, after uh, 1,500 years in Europe and building a uh, Jewish society in every country, they were driven out of every country. And Europe became the burial ground of uh, much of the Jewish people after all of this time and after all of its contributions to Europe and uh, I don't want to end on that sad note but uh, I saw that 84% of uh, the Israeli population is happy (laughs) and that's in spite of the fact that they don't all come to my lectures But uh, we certainly are happy uh, in the situation that we are, that we live here in the state of Israel. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi. J.M. in the A.M. <laughs> An amazing sense of humor. He's great, Rabbi Wine. He really is great. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, they have been uh, the bulk of our nine days spoken word format. Uh, you go to one 800 499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com for information. And uh, 
And that is that. Can't figure out if this is the live presentation of Galate Sala or not. I'm having trouble deciphering some of the things with their new website, but we are uh, we are committed. We are committed to um, do our news from Israel, and hopefully that'll come up in two minutes from now. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Don't forget our weekly update comes up at 7.40 Eastern Time. 7.40 Eastern Time, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. It's Friday, final Friday of July 2017, the 5th of Av. Monday is Erev Tishabav. Tuesday is Tishabav. Monday night, Tuesday is Tishabav. Wednesday, Matis will do our 10th of Av Kalbach special. That's stories of Rib Shlomo Kalbach. And then Thursday will be live from Israel, well, sort of live from Israel with, with Yom NCSY. That'll be, a, well, that will have been done a few hours earlier. And then Friday morning from uh, Michlelet in Beit Shemesh, Israel, as we examine the NCSY summer programs and spend some time with our good friends at NCSY in Israel. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, candle lighting 755 on this Erev Shabbos. 7.55 in the New York area. A lot of synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. 73 degrees, mostly cloudy, a high of 84. Then tonight, showers late, a low 67. Tomorrow, cloudy skies, a high temperature of 80. Yerushalayim's at 87. Our friends up in Camp Misora, up in Guilford, New York, they're at 60 degrees and a big mazel tov to Yosef Siegel for his seal and Masechus brachos last night. And here in New York, 73 degrees, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Got our uh, news from Israel in the background, hopefully. Uh, a reminder, there's an inspiring tour of Kivrei Tzadikim happening. Uh, it's the last tour before Elul, uh, led by Rabbi Yosef Gesser, author of the column Monuments to Nobility in Our Backyard. Uh, which he writes in Hamodia's Indian magazine. Uh, it's private and group tours available. Uh, the next Washington Cemetery tour is Sunday, July 30th. It's coming Sunday beginning at 10.30 in the morning. At Washington Cemetery, the uh, Kvarim of Rav Hillel Klein, Rav Shimon Finkelstein, Rav Yaakov Ehrenreich, uh, Rav Gedal Yahu Bernstein. They are all there. It's an opportunity to uh, daven at these uh, Kvarim. Uh, you can go to Y Gesser, initial Y Gesser, G E S S E R at gmail.com or dial 718 690 1534. 718 690 1534. Galait Sal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday. Arab Shabbos is next. We say Boker Tov from JM and the AM. Galait Sal, Ashaashtaim, Kanoa Maviram, Imashikore Achshav. בהר הבית הסתיימו תפילות יום השישי ללא אירועים מיוחדים, אך בכמה אזורים במזרח ירושלים נרשמו הפרות סדר. כתבנו אריאל זיגלר. התפילות בהר הסתיימו בדקות האחרונות ואלפי המתפללים עוזבים כעת את המקום. התפילות עברו ללא הפרות סדר בהר וסמוך אליו. במזרח ירושלים וסמוך לעיר העתיקה, לעומת זאת כן נרשמו הפרות סדר והמתפרעים פונו במספר נקודות באמצעים לפיזור הפגנות. להר הבית ולעיר העתיקה הורשו להיכנס רק גברים מעל גיל 50. על נשים לא חלה הגבלת גיל. גם בשטחים עימותים בין פלסטינים לכוחות הביטחון בכמה מוקדים. כתבתנו כרמל דנגור. 
הפרות הסדר נרשמו בקלקיליה, קבר רחל, במבואות בית לחם, כפר נעלין, כפר קדום וחווה חמש באזור שכם. עד כה רק עשרות משתתפים בכל אחד מהמוקדים. כוחות הביטחון מגיבים באמצעים לפיזור הפגנות לעבר המתפרעים. בצה"ל דיווחו על שני פלסטינים שנפצעו מירי גומי. השר לביטחון הפנים גלעד ארדן אמר סמוך לתחילת התפילה בהר הבית כי ישראל לא תהסס להגיב על מעשי אלימות. משטרת ישראל עשתה את כל הצעדים על מנת להביא היום לרגיעה בשטח, כולל עשרות מעצרים ליליים אמש של פורעי החוק בהר הבית. אנחנו לא נהסס ותינקט יד קשה ותקיפה היום כנגד כל מי שיפר את הסדר. בליכוד תוקפים בחריפות את יושב ראש הבית היהודי נפתלי בנט על רקע דברים שאמר אתמול בגל"צ. כתבנו מיכאל האוזר טוב. אם יש דבר שמסוכן לביטחון ישראל זה אנשים שיושבים בקבינט ומובלים על פי טובתם האישית והכותרת שידליפו משם תוקף גורם בליכוד את השר בנט וממשיך בנט שתמך תחילה בהורדת המגנומטרים לא עמד יותר מדקה וחצי בלחץ התקשורת הוא מסכן את ביטחון ישראל ומשתמש בו באופן ילדותי וחסר אחריות לציוצים בטוויטר כך הגורם תושב הצפון נעצר בחשד שעמד בראש רשת שכבתה דמי חסות מעסקים כתבתנו דור מימון הכוח של הימ"מ עצר הלילה ביריחו, תושב הגליל, שנמלט מהמשטרה בשמונת החודשים האחרונים. הוא חשוד שעמד בראש חוליה שגבתה דמי חסות מבעלי עסקים בצפון. בפשיטה של ימ"ר בתחילת השנה נעצרו עשרות חשודים בפרשה, אך החשוד המרכזי נמלט לתחומי הרשות הפלסטינית. הוא יובא היום להארכת מעצרו בבית משפט השלום בנצרת. תגובה ראשונה של רוסיה אחרי הטלת העיצומים מצד ארצות הברית היא דורשת לצמצם את הסגל הדיפלומטי האמריקני במוסקבה, כתבנו נתנאל דרשן. משרד החוץ של רוסיה הודיע לממשל בוושינגטון כי עד ל-1 בספטמבר עליו להחזיר לארצות הברית חלק מהצוות הדיפלומטי שלו, וכי בנוסף מתכוון הקרמלין להחרים מתקנים המשמשים את נציגי ארצות הברית ברוסיה. השבוע אישרו שני בתי הקונגרס האמריקני הטלת עיצומים נוספים על מוסקבה, על רקע התערבותה במערכת הבחירות בארצות הברית, וכן פעולותיה הצבאיות נגד שכנותיה. והתחזית מחר תורגש הקלה בעומס החום, בראשון עלייה בטמפרטורות ובשני עומס חום כבד בכל הארץ והוויל במישור החוף. אלה החדשות שעורך עמרי רחמימוב, בצוות עפרה ארליך והילה מזרחי. Erev Shabbos Chazon, Tisha B'Av, this coming Monday night. Uh, we have been um, featuring Rabbi Beryl Wine with his amazing lecture series uh, for all of the nine days. And um, what might be for us the most interesting lecture of the entire series, the series is Europe and the Jews, and what might be for us the most interesting uh, uh, lecture in this entire series is is the final one. It's called Europe and Israel Today. Europe and Israel Today. Rabbi Beryl Wine, it's JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, lecture is the uh, uh, final lecture in this series regarding Europe and the Jews. And uh, the pre- All right, my apologies for that. A slight... malfunction there. Give me a second and I apologize again. Uh, we will get Rabbi Wine's lecture back, that's for sure. Don't worry. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, information, by the way, and it's something we recommend that everybody check out the website and see what uh, 
what they have to offer at the Destiny Foundation. It really is incredible what they have to offer. One, uh, the website is uh, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com, rabbiwein.com. The Destiny Foundation is... There we go. And um, you could also call 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. All right, one more time. Here we go. Europe and Israel Today, Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, lecture is the uh, uh, final lecture in this series regarding Europe and the Jews. And uh, the previous lectures have reviewed uh, the various stages of Jewish life in Europe and of European life vis-a-vis the Jews. It's basically not a very happy story, uh, culminating in the Second World War and the Holocaust, But the story continues even after that, as we are well aware today, and uh, it's on uh, today's world uh, that I want to concentrate tonight. In 1945, when the war ended in Europe, uh, most of Europe was in a shambles. Germany was completely destroyed, as was uh, Poland, most of the Baltic states, a great deal of the Soviet Union. And uh, the economy and the structure of Europe uh, was changed in a fashion that you would never be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. All of the great empires were gone. England uh, hung on for another few years. Uh, But by 1950, it was clear that the British Empire had also ended. And uh, Europe uh, was left uh, bereft, without resources. It also suffered the coldest winter in many, many decades. There was a shortage of coal and food. uh, And there were uh, literally millions and millions of Europeans that were displaced not only displaced, but uh, forcibly removed. For instance, the Soviet Union moved uh, quite a few million people. There were Volga Germans, ethnic Germans that had lived in the Soviet Union, uh, that lived in Russia for uh, centuries. Anyone with a German background was immediately sent back to Germany. Uh, Poland took over East Prussia and they sent all the Germans, the Prussians, back. Uh, There was an estimated 12 million people on the move, one way or another. Uh, The Soviet Union demanded that all of its war prisoners who still were alive Most of the Soviet prisoners died in German camps. But those that were still alive, they demanded their return. And even though uh, the prisoners themselves uh, did not want to go back because they knew what awaited them in Stalin's gulag, nevertheless, uh, the Allies, the United States, Britain, France, sent back all the Russians who were arrested and sent to Siberia, most of whom died there. In this mix 
there were a few hundred thousand Jews that had somehow survived the Holocaust. And the question arose, what to do with them? What shall we do with them? So the Jews attempted first uh, to return to their homes. And uh, about 50,000 Jews returned to Poland. When they came back to Poland after the Holocaust, uh, they were met with pogroms. Uh, the Poles uh, themselves attempted to complete the work that the Germans had begun, especially in Kielce, where uh, Jews were murdered at the railroad station, uh, so that it became obvious that Jewish life in Poland had no future. The uh, Soviet Union, at the onset of 1946, opened its borders to allow people to leave. It forced people to leave, but they allowed people to leave also. And tens of thousands of Jews left, Jews who uh, were uh, deep in the Soviet Union during the war. But where were they going to go? And since Europe was destitute, it had no funds to absorb any refugees, uh, then the uh, the Allies created what they called displaced person camps, DP camps. Many of the DP camps were where the concentration camps were. And in those DP camps, which were populated mainly by Jews because Jews were the displaced persons, everybody else had somewhere to go, so to speak. They had a national entity. The Jews had none. And the Jews met uh, a great deal of anti-Semitism from the Allies. General George Patton, who was a famous American general during the war, uh, was a noted anti-Semite and treated the Jews very badly in the area under his command. So you had this uh, ferment uh, that the Jews evidently felt that they had no place in Europe. Now, in 1948, uh, General Marshall, who was then the American Foreign Secretary, the Secretary of State, came up with the famous Marshall Plan, where the United States, in effect, rebuilt Europe. And it did so, uh, it rebuilt uh, not only uh, France and the Allies, it rebuilt Germany as well. That was the Cold War between Russia and the United States, between the Soviet Union and the United States. And uh, this uh, affected everything that uh, would happen with the Jews in Europe. England still controlled Palestine, and it was reluctant to give it up. Uh, it still had the Suez Canal in Egypt. It still had the Iraqi oil fields. And therefore, uh, it uh, felt that its linchpin in the Middle East was Palestine. The British kept in effect, after the war, the same white paper that they had issued in 1939 before the war. Meaning, in effect, Jewish immigration was limited to a trickle. 15,000 Jews 
you know, you got 250,000 in Europe alone in the DP camps, and uh, the British uh, were under a new government uh, headed by Clement Attlee, a Labour government. Now, Labour, when it was in the opposition, was always pro-Zionist. One of the rules is that when you're in the opposition, you're for us. When you get the power, so then the things change. And uh, the British Foreign Secretary was a man by the name of Ernest Bevan. Bevan immediately announced that the Jews should not push to the head of the queue, meaning that England had a lot of problems and that the Jews were not number one. And he wasn't going to push it. And in effect, uh, England now uh, closed the doors of Palestine to Jewish immigration. Uh, the Zionist movement uh, organized an underground to bring refugees from Europe to the land of Israel. It was only a trickle, but it gained uh, worldwide attention. And uh, the uh, Jews uh, in the land of Israel uh, cooperated by hiding any Jew that came into the country. They hid them in kibbutzim and cities, etc., so that the British could not find them. So Britain therefore instituted a blockade. The British Navy in the Mediterranean uh, prevented uh, any of the refugee ships from coming. Some uh, eventually landed in Haifa, but they were sent back. And Britain made a large prison camp on the island of Cyprus, which it then controlled, and uh, 30,000 Jews were shipped off to Cyprus, again to live behind a barbed wire and a uh, internment. The uh, Zionist movement somehow asked that for 100,000 Jews to be left into the land of Israel. Why? It was a magic number, 100,000. Uh, really, they made a mistake, England, because if they would have agreed, so then they would be able to say, listen, we gave you 100,000, now what do you want from us? But uh, England uh, refused under all circumstances. And you had the famous uh, ship, the Exodus, that 4,000 people aboard was sent back to Germany by England. Public opinion turned against England, world opinion. And because of that, therefore, they made commissions. There was an, an, an Anglo-British commission. There was a UN commission. Uh, and they all recommended the same thing, that 100,000 Jews be allowed in the country. Eventually, uh, they, the United Nations commission recommended partitioning the country, the two-state solution, which has been on the table for 75 years. And uh, they drew up a plan. Under the plan, the uh, Arab part of Palestine would be uh, much larger than the Jewish part, and the Jewish part would be truncated. It wouldn't even be contiguous. The Zionist movement accepted. They said, you know, better a third of a loaf than none. But uh, the Arabs in the 
probably even immortal phrase, never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. They refused under all circumstances. Finally, in November 1947, the United Nations Assembly voted on the matter. Imagine if the United Nations Assembly today would have to vote. <laughs> you see, uh, timing is everything. And uh, by all sorts of uh, machinations, uh, the uh, resolution passed, got the two-thirds necessary, and the Arab uh, states walked out of the uh, General Assembly. The next day, the war began. The war began in 47, and it lasted almost till 1950, the War of Independence. But the state of Israel came into being, and it came into being with much better borders than what the United Nations had given them. And immediately the state of Israel opened its doors and absorbed uh, the 250,000 that wanted to come into the country. Now you have to imagine the country only had 600,000 Jews. And you're taking in uh, almost uh, another third added to it. The country was desperately poor. Uh, there was uh, food rationing, uh, there was no housing. It was not a pleasant uh, situation. Now, the European countries uh, looked at the situation as a way, so to speak, to solve their Jewish problem. More than that, to solve their Jewish conscience, because the Holocaust was very fresh, and there was a tremendous sense of something disastrous that happened here in Europe. And you had the first books written, you know, Wiesel's book and Sartre's book. Other people wrote books already. So uh, Europe initially was very pro-Israel. Uh, the French helped the Israelis acquire nuclear energy and nuclear power and nuclear ability. Uh, Germany under Adenauer uh, made a reparations agreement uh, to uh, refund uh, part of the loot that they took. Uh, these were all done uh, because there were two mindsets in Europe. One mindset in Europe was that they were all victims. Nobody ever did anything. They were the victims. And the average German, he was the victim of Hitler. Uh, the Austrians, they were occupied. And the Poles, they were occupied. And they never did anything. They were never complicit in it. And that remains an attitude until today. Europe has yet to face up to what it did. But a second mindset was that the Jewish state would solve a lot of problems. Now, in 1948, when the state was declared, uh, Truman and the United States was the first country to recognize the state of Israel as a state. The second country was the Soviet Union. In fact, it's one of the rare moments in the whole history of the UN during that period of time where the Soviet Union and the United States voted on the same issue the same way. Now, 
Remarkable period of our history that everyone is discussing right now. We will continue in just a couple of minutes here at JM and the AM. The topic is Europe and Israel today. Rabbi Wine is now speaking about the founding of the State of Israel in the late 1940s. Friday morning broadcast on this Erev Shabbos Chazon. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Devarim, candlelighting at 7.55 in New York. A lot of synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. My name is Nachum Siegel. Nine days format. Monday we are here. Erev Tishabov. Sunday, of course, Matas is in with JM Sunday for the nine days and Shavuot Shachalbo. Monday we are here. Tuesday we are here at 7.30, a live kinnis service. Myself with Rabbi David Goldwasser. If you're not able to make it to shul or if you just want an inspiring kinnis service, that happens on Tuesday starting at 7.30 during JM in the AM. Wednesday, Matas will do the show, and that'll be our 10th of Av uh, Shlomo Kalbach Stories special. And then uh, Thursday, we are with uh, Yom NCSY in Israel. And Friday, we are with the NCSY summer programs in Israel, broadcasting from Michlelet. It is going to be an interesting, fun, and uh, amazing way to kick things off once Tishabov has come to its conclusion. Reminder that the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation presents Amuna for Life. It is their annual Tishabov program, the Isidore and Ruth Gibber Worldwide Tishabov event for 5777. If you go to the website, powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org, you will see an incredible number of cities and sites that will be showing and um, uh, presenting the, uh, will be presenting the, uh, the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation program for this Tishabov. Go to powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org for all the information. Reminder that our very own Charlie Harari is going to be wrapping up Tishabov starting at 6.30 p.m. with Project Inspire and a very, very prominent lineup of guest presenters. The topic is, what is the missing link to bringing the Geula? 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday, Tishabov to close out the fast. They're asking you to share your thoughts by emailing an audio recording or just a plain email to radio at projectinspire.com with the answer to the question, what is the missing link to bringing the Geula? Radio at projectinspire.com. Dot com and you'll have an opportunity to uh, join them live on the program. It's a possibility you'll be asked to join live on the program this coming Tuesday. Uh, in Brooklyn, at, at the Ocean Parkway Jewish Center, the Tisha B'Av program has been announced. Marv will be at 9 o'clock Monday night. Then Rabbi Chaim Walken and Rabbi David Goldwasser on Kinnis. Uh, Shachris at 8 o'clock, and then Kinnis with Rabbi Ephraim Levine, Rabbi Tzim Mordechai Feldheim, Rabbi Noach Orlowick, Rabbi Yosef Wiener, Rabbi Shai Tahan, Rav, Dov, uh, Rav Daniel Gladstein, Rav Nussin Sherman, or Moshe Tovia Lee for Vishal Schachter. Uh, it's all happening all day long at the Ocean Parkway Jewish Center, 550 Ocean Parkway. Information at 718-998-5822, 718-998-5822. We remind you, of course, that the uh, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall is going to be happening this coming Tuesday, 2 p.m. Men and women are invited Come to the Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue, New York City. Uh, make sure to bring your talus and tefillin and a sidur, and you'll be ready for Mincha and Tishabov. It's uh, perfect during lunch hour. If you normally take lunch around 2 o'clock, uh, this is the perfect time if you're in Manhattan and working to come to Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd and 1st in New York City. We'll continue with our barrel wine. The topic is uh, Europe and Israel today. And then we'll be back with more, including our weekly update right here at JM in the AM. What was Stalin's uh, reckoning here? What did he think? 
Well, he was misled by the Israeli communists. He thought that Israel would become a satellite of the Soviet Union. Just as Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and the Baltic states and everybody else where the Soviet Communist Party dominated. So that was his shoehorn to get into the Middle East. He'd get into the Middle East through Tel Aviv. But uh, it was a miscalculation because the, uh, even though the country was leftist and socialist, it was not communist and it was not really Marxist. And in the Cold War, uh, Ben-Gurion chose to side with America, not with the Soviet Union. From that moment on, beginning in, let's say, uh, 1951, 52, the Soviet Union became a bitter enemy of the state of Israel. And it remains until today the greatest source of European hatred of the state of Israel is from the left, which is inspired by Soviet propaganda, even though the Soviet Union is gone already. But after 70 years of it, it baked into their bones. And the Soviet Union attempted a number of times to destroy the state of Israel. It encouraged Nasser in 1967 in the Six-Day War and supplied him with all the airplanes he needed. So again, in a uh, ironic thing, uh, France supported Israel by selling them planes. The United States didn't sell planes to Israel then. So the Israeli Air Force was made up of uh, mysteries of the other French airplanes. If it wouldn't have been for France, uh, then who knows what would have happened. In 1973, the Soviet Union uh, supplied both Syria and Egypt, and uh, then created uh, vast anti-aircraft systems and missiles that uh, gave the Arabs uh, initially great successes in the Yom Kippur War. And on the diplomatic front, the Soviet Union broke relations with Israel in 1967 and did not restore them until the Soviet Union failed. And it uh, did everything possible to undermine the state of Israel. It uh, reprinted the protocols of the elders of Zion, that famous uh, bogus anti-Semitic work, translated it into Arabic, it distributed it in millions of copies in the Arabic world. It uh, supported uh, with its satellites all of the anti-Israel resolutions that come up every year in the United Nations. It was the one that uh, uh, was the author of the Zionism is Racism resolution. So it left a, a residue a pool of tremendous anti-Israel, anti-Jewish poison that has infected Europe because Europe in the Cold War had many fellow travelers, especially amongst the intelligentsia. The universities have always been left. The question is how left? And it found an audience in the universities 
And when the Soviet Union collapsed, so even though communism to a certain extent had been disproven, the poison that it spread had not been eliminated. And that's pretty much the situation today. Uh, BDS movements uh, all over the world are basically left. Uh, and what is it with the left? Uh, well, there's two things that Europe learned. First of all, as I mentioned before, that we're always on the side of the victim because in World War II, we destroyed the victims. So we have to do complete penance and we have to always be on the side of the victim. Who's the victim here? Well, one side is successful, relatively speaking, wealthy, stable, has the best army in the Middle East, is a uh, technological power. And the other side is never. The other side is, uh, you know, uh, doesn't win Nobel Prizes, doesn't uh, invent uh, Microsoft chips, it's downtrodden, it's primitive. So who's the victim? So it must be the victim. And by European logic, standards, understanding of the situation, we have to always support the victim. And therefore, uh, Europe is very, very anti-Israel. Now, it cannot be completely anti-Israel because it needs Israel for certain things and because of the fact that it still has a residue of conscience from what happened in the Second World War. But basically, Europe is very anti-Israel, and there's very little that Israel can do, you know, uh, about it, because in the eyes of the intelligentsia, in the eyes of uh, Europe, uh, the, the Palestinians are the victims, the Arabs are the victims. And how can you be on the side of the victims? Yeah, so it must be that the other side is the aggressor, it must be that the other side must be the one that's guilty. And that is pretty much the European mindset today. So you have like the foreign minister of Sweden, whatever her problem is, but it's almost an obsession with her. But what does it have to do with Sweden? There's another issue that impinges here. I think it's a subtle issue, but I think it's very important. Uh, Europe, uh, to a great extent, is no longer religious. Uh, the church has lost uh, almost all of its influence in Europe. Uh, most Europeans don't go to church anymore. Polls keep on showing that most Europeans don't believe in God. They don't believe in any religion. And because of that, therefore... Uh, you cannot speak to them that this is our ancient homeland or that it was promised to Abraham or that somehow uh, it's the basis of what used to be called the Judeo-Christian culture. There is no Judeo-Christian culture anymore. It's a completely secular culture. There never was an Abraham. And therefore... Uh, uh, arguments that may have resonated uh, even 50 years ago 
that simply have no place today because uh, it doesn't exist. The the irony is that the uh, the Catholic Church in Europe, at least uh, officially, has renounced anti-Semitism, has recognized the state of Israel, uh, the Pope's visit here, but uh, its effect is almost uh, non-existent because uh, the uh, basic uh, Catholic uh, masses in Europe are dwindling, and the church itself faces such enormous problems, internal problems, (laughs) that it really doesn't have time for us. And therefore, uh, an affinity that once existed does not exist anymore. Uh, There was a time, for instance, when the Protestants in England were Zionistic, Uh, just like the Christian fundamentalists in the United States today are Zionistic because it's part of their faith, so to speak. Part of their belief is that somehow the Jews have to come back to the land of Israel and then uh, the rest of their scenario will play out. But uh, if uh, that group uh, has almost disappeared, I saw that uh, it says that... uh, Less than uh, 40% of the population of England attends uh, a religious institution. And don't forget, England has a lot of Muslims who do attend. So it means that the Christian core of England has withered away. So any support for the state of Israel based on religious grounds uh, really uh, doesn't exist anymore. In the United States, it still does. That's the whole idea of the fundamentalists in America that are so pro-Zionistic. Their motivation is their faith, but nevertheless, uh, we are the beneficiaries of it. It does help. But in Europe, that doesn't exist. And uh, the popes themselves, uh, this pope has as his agenda social welfare. It has very little to do with the church. So then the, the church is no longer a matter of faith. It's a, it's a welfare agency, which is very nice, very necessary. Uh, but that's not religion. And that's not uh, the classical view of what the church stood for. So in the Europe, uh, you, first you had the, the Soviet Union, then you have the decline of the church. And you have the feeling of victimhood, that we have to be on the side of the victim. And the victim is always the one that is weaker, that doesn't win the wars. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, you have this wellspring of anti-Israel, almost obsessive behavior that uh, permeates Europe. Now, Europe today faces an enormous challenge from the uh, immigration of millions of Muslims. The uh, history of Europe always was that it was the bulwark of Christianity against Islam. Uh, Fought wars, not just the Crusades, but uh, throughout uh, Europe and throughout history, Uh, The Europeans uh, fought to hold back the Islamic tide from reaching Europe. 
and uh, the borderline was where the Ottoman Empire, which was Muslim, uh, touched the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was Christian. That border was erased by the First World War. And after the Second World War, uh, England had a policy that if you were a citizen of one of its colonies, you had a right to emigrate to England. And that brought in hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of non-Christians, of Muslims into the country. Now the question always is with immigration, whether or not the immigrants will integrate into the culture of the country, or whether or not they will not. They, they will remain isolated and separate. In the United States, we had the great uh, melting pot. JM and the AM, my wine will continue with more regarding uh, Europe and Israel today. We're going to try to wrap up this lecture between the next few minutes and then after our weekly update and Rabbi Yudin. We're going to try very hard to get it all in today, if possible. Rabbi Wine actually might call in later on this morning for us here at JMN, which would be very nice. And uh, if he does, obviously, we'll speak with him live on the air. Uh, An inspiring tour of Kivrei Tzadikim at Washington Cemetery takes place this coming Sunday, starting at 10.30 in the morning. It's the last tour before Elul. Uh, Speak to Rabbi Gesser, Rabbi Yosef Gesser, by email, ygesser at gmail.com, or by dialing 718-690-1534. Reminder that Hidden, that incredible documentary from Project Witness, will be shown this coming Saturday night, tomorrow night at Congregation B'nai Yeshurun on West Englewood Avenue in Teaneck, starting at 10 p.m. Again, that's Teaneck at 10 p.m. tomorrow night. And then in Cedarhurst on Sunday night at the Young Israel of Lawrence, 8 Spruce Street. Young Israel of Lawrence. Information, projectwitness.org, projectwitness.org, or 718-WITNESS, 718-WITNESS. And a reminder, the bake sale to support the Lone Soldiers Center, uh, that continues today from 10 until 1 at Breezy's, 572 Central Avenue in the Five Towns. That's 572 Central Avenue today from 10 to 1, the bake sale to support the Lone Soldiers Center. Do your best to stop by and be there. Reminder that Emuna for Life, the... Um, the Gibber Worldwide Tisha B'Av event from the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation happens this Tisha B'Av. As you'll see online, countries, cities, and sites galore uh, showing the Tisha B'Av event entitled Emuna for Life. Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, go to the website for information about the event at um, powerofspeech.org. That's powerofspeech.org. Our very own Charlie Harari will close out the fast on Tuesday beginning at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time with an amazing uh, array of presenters. Uh, with the title, What is the Missing Link to Bringing the Geula? What is the Missing Link to Bringing the Geula? They want your answers to that question at radio at projectinspire.com. Radio at projectinspire.com. You can catch that at the Nahum Single Network this coming Tuesday beginning at 6.30 p.m. And don't forget, bring your Tollison's fill into the Isaiah Wall, 1st Avenue, 43rd Street in New York City this coming Tuesday, Tishabov. Men and women are invited to the uh, Big Tefillah led by Amcha, it's 2 o'clock this coming Tuesday for the inspiring tefillah at the Isaiah Wall across from the United Nations. Malcolm Holmline is going to be joining us minutes from now. Keep it right here at JM in the AM. idea uh, that anybody that came to America was thrown into this pot and would come out to be American, whatever American meant. 
but then it would no longer speak the uh, language uh, except English, and it would adopt American culture. Uh, that uh, idea was certainly in France, in England, in Germany, throughout Europe. And Europeans prided themselves on their culture. That's what it meant to be European. It meant going to the symphony. It meant the opera. It meant the, the university. It meant all of those things. Here came a very large number of immigrants who are not interested to go to the opera, <laughs> who don't go to the uh, to Barbican Hall to hear the, the, uh, the London Symphony who want to continue to speak Arabic, who live in their own enclaves, and did not integrate into the country. This was true in France as well. France uh, controlled Algeria and parts of Morocco. And in fact, uh, till the time of de Gaulle, uh, held that Algeria was a province of France was like living in Paris. He lived in Algiers. And when the uh, uh, France was forced to give up Algeria, so you had hundreds of thousands of Algerians that moved into France proper. Many of them were Jews. That's the large Sephardic population in France, which is the main Jewish population, is really North African in its origin. But you had uh, a large number of Muslims that moved in also. And they have refused to accommodate themselves to, to accommodate themselves to French culture. They have their own culture, their own language, their own faith, their own beliefs. And also a part of the problem, the immigrant generation, is that it usually is poverty stricken. The first generation has a terrible time. It was true here in Israel as well. We all know what it feels like to be an immigrant, but we're blessed that most of us came with some resources, or we have family here or something, you know, we have some sort of support system. But if you come alone, so what kind of job can you get? You can be a dishwasher for uh, 15 shekel an hour. It's the next generation that, uh, you know, you work for 15 shekel an hour, you save up whatever you can, you send your kid to the university, and he becomes a doctor or a lawyer, etc., and that's how we get out of it. That was the uh, procedure, at least in the United States, where it worked for a long period of time. But it never worked in Europe. And uh, because of that, therefore... Uh, you have this mass of people who are not integrated into Europe and who are terribly frustrated, poverty-ridden, crime-ridden, and have very little hope. And such a group always will find scapegoats, will always find who to hate. And it's a fertile ground for anti-Jewish uh, propaganda. J.M. in the A.M. We will continue, of course. Roy Barrow-Wine has about uh, 10 minutes left to this lecture and to the entire series, Europe and the Jews. And we're going to try to do it today, fit it in after uh, our weekly update and after Rabbi Yudin. Um, we'll try to uh, do it before 9 a.m. 
Uh, you're listening to JM in the AM on a Friday morning. Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim. Erev Shabbos Chazon. Tisha B'Av is Monday night. Tuesday, we will have a live Kinnis service. Myself and Rabbi Goldwasser beginning at 7.30 a.m. Make sure to be tuned in. Wednesday, Matis hosts the annual 10th of Av. Well, it's not always annual because sometimes the 10th of Av is the day of the fast. But uh, he'll be hosting the almost annual 10th of Av special, Stories of Shlomo Kalbach. That's Wednesday. Thursday, we're in Israel with Yom NCSY. Friday, we're in Israel with uh, NCSY summer programs, uh, chiefly uh, or most um, most prominently Michlelet. They'll be our hosts, and uh, Kolel and, and others will be there as well. Uh, that's going to be happening on Friday morning next week. There'll be no weekly update next week. The weekly update will return, Bezrat Hashem, two weeks from today, starting at 7.40 Eastern time here at JM in the AM. Big sh- shout-out to our friends at JewishWorldReview.com. If you want to print out a lot of articles about Israel and the Jewish world before Shabbat, go to JewishWorldReview.com. And, of course, to OnlySimchas.com. OnlySimchas.com has amazing content with great stories from around the Jewish world, not just Smachot. Uh, and they do include a lot of our content, which we're proud of. Go to OnlySimchas.com, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Try to check it on a daily basis. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning to you, Nachum. Uh, what can I say? Um, we leave the air last week, and within hours, the collective Jewish heart around the world is pierced by the uh, by the news of what happened in Chalamish. Um it is. I, I pointed out earlier in the week when Rabbi Fast was on, and maybe it's a, maybe it's such a. I, I don't know how important a point it is or not, but as terror attacks go, and imagine that we're now in the in the business of classifying terror attacks, as horrible as each one of them is, uh, when when the terrorist invades someone home on a Friday night, a situation all of us can relate to, it seems to pierce the collective Jewish heart and affect the collective Jewish pain even more so. Uh, have you seen the headlines, including the New York Times headline, about last Friday night's episode? I've seen the headlines uh, all over the world, BBC, other places where they talk about the mythological temples, yet they uh, give credibility to the fact that Muhammad ascended from the wall after his death. Let me read to you last Saturday morning's New York Times headline. Deadly violence erupts in standoff over mosque in Jerusalem. Six people ended up dead after an apparent terrorist attack in the West Bank and clashes in Jerusalem over metal detectors at entrances to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. They're actually blaming the Chalamish attack on the installation of medical detectors, metal detectors at that point at Harabayat. Well, it is, pro- it is related to it, uh, and uh, there were other attacks as well. Thank God they did, did not succeed as this did, and the, the, and there were worse headlines that actually ascribed this all to, you know, Israelis killing Palestinians, and then noting that two Israelis also died. Not that this was an attack on Israeli policemen there to guard Muslim worshippers, and that the installation of metal detectors, something that is done around the world, including. For Jews going to the Kotel, to the wall, I mean, they have made the point that we all go through a metal detector, that the Vatican has it, that mosques all over the world have it, and yet the media distortions and misrepresentations around the world, and I'm saying going to more, even more, to, to some fundamental points about it, and 
dismissing, in many cases, Chalmisha and saying it's a settler, an attack on settlers, as if that's warranted or, or somehow less of a crime or not a crime at all. The media coverage in, in general uh, on a lot of these issues, and you have to then look if they're Palestinian stringers and, and people who ha- carry a, an agenda, who, uh, even if it's in New York Times, most of them have cut back their presence in, uh, in Israel and around the world. And therefore, they rely on local stringers uh, for the story. And the 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 whole idea that this is somehow that the metal detectors are a violation or any kind of an insult, when in fact it is uh, it is Muslims in prayer a prayer who will be uh, protected after finding weapons cache all over the Temple Mount, indicating waqf collusion in this. Uh, and that the the uh, you know there were additional weapons, another knapsack of one of those who was killed, um, which was full of uh, of additional weapons. So uh, one of the Arabs that was killed. So this and they and men, and they were Israeli Arabs, by the way. So this is uh, it, it is really regrettable to see it. And then of course it was compounded by the incident in Jordan, which uh, raised the the um, uh, hackles even more and and. A complicated uh, case that not not a black and white case and not even necessarily a case of terrorism from information that seems to be coming out. Let's go back to the first part for a second. Then I want to get to Jordan. But on the first part, um, based on your statement, unless I'm reading it wrong or I'm reading into it something that uh, you know that, that something extra, it, it seems that you are ready to that you have publicly disagreed with the with the uh, administration in Jerusalem about the removal of the metal detectors. I, I, that's a decision they have to make. It's not a decision we sitting here can second guess. But uh, I would say that uh, um, one has to see that there are downsides to the decision that was made because terrorists will now, and, and you see that the demonstrations and the um, a euphoric reaction, as one person there told me, uh, of the Arabs, that this will become a modus vivendi for them, that they will know that if you put enough pressure, you, you demonstrate in the streets, you can always mobilize people, as Abbas has done so often, saying Al-Aqsa is under siege, uh, and that is a, a, an automatic uh, rallying point and, and raises the, the tension level uh, immediately, uh, so removing it and appearing to succumb to pressure is uh, has consequences. I'm not second guessing the decision. They have police, they have security people. They know what what the traffic can bear. And the question is, are were there not more high tech methods such as the ones they have in place? They have cameras all over uh, Jerusalem. They are able to monitor, uh, as one police official told me, the movements generally. Uh, so then why put up the metal detectors in the first place? These are all legitimate questions that people have asked. Uh, I think it's, it's you know, a decision that a, a government has to make based on all the facts that they have. The White House applauded the way Jerusalem handled this. Um, weren't you surprised that they had any statement at all to make about this episode with the removal of the metal detectors? No, I think that it's that, that Israel, American representatives were intimately involved in discussions, both with Jordan and with the Israeli officials about it. They had urged uh, Israel to consider steps to defuse it. They also told Abbas to take steps to defuse it. And the fact is that Abbas has done anything but that. And, and if you uh, see that he is also talking now 
uh, and had given instructions to begin approaching the International Criminal Court in The Hague and to join 28 international organizations as a state. He, he sent a message to the residents of eastern Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem is ours and it is our capital, and you're correct in what you're doing, and we support what you're doing, uh, that what, what you did and do and uh, are doing, so meaning that they should uh, continue. And he's, he allocated $25 million, all the son that he had, for, uh, for e- East Jerusalem. This is, remember, all to improve his standing. He, he is very low. He's being challenged in Gaza by Dahlan coming back and the, and the Hamas deal, etc. It's all interrelated. He, his standing in the West Bank areas is very low. So here he has been given a new lease on life. He's suddenly emerged again and gets uh, um, sympathetic statements out of Europeans. And now, according to the, the, his own law, the people who carried out the attack in Halamish will get $3,300 plus each month. This is the fourth time what the average Palestinian earns, about a million two hundred and eleven thousand for the 30 years that um, uh, goes that, to that, that guy's certainly family. will be sentenced to. It's the normal uh, term. So about $500 million of that money comes from the U.S., and, and you saw Congress moving again this week, giving expression to the increasing frustration with Abbas and with his, um, his assertions, and which is, brings me to one other thing, and that is the State Department report, which was outrageous and which we criticized very much. Um, it was a, a, a conglomeration of past statements going back to all the Obama years, 2011, 10, 14. In other words, it praises Abbas for his progress in the incitement area. It goes so far, it's almost hard to believe. The State Department people obviously took old reports and cobbled it together. Uh, and they can say it's for a lot of reasons. They don't have the staff there. They're, you know, they're very short. Uh, there are 100 employees waiting to be appointed that uh, or confirmed that uh, these are all carryovers from earlier years. But it talks about um, explicit calls for violence against Israelis or excitations against Jews are rare because of the leadership, under the leadership, uh, uh, not tolerating it of, of Abbas. And says that since 2005, when he took over, he has worked assiduously to stop incitement. When he himself is the guy naming squares and 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 um, inciting the violence and calling for that Al-Aqsa is under siege and denying the existence of the temples. And that the State Department report shifts the onus onto Israel for the violence, although it takes note of violence against Israel. And one would have thought that they would at least have said, look, you know, we're under a lot of stress and we review it. They doubled down on it in response to the criticism. Yeah. They said, no, we stand by the report and, you know, this is the situation where it's really balanced. And it is not. And to think in, the view, in, the, in light of, uh, obviously, the statements coming out of the White House are completely incongruous with, with the attitude that we've seen uh, manifest there. Unbelievable. Uh, and your statement was extremely strong about this, which was, uh, and, and now we hear it in your voice, just how outrageous uh, this is. Because it has consequences. People, other countries will use it, organizations, BDS organizations, others will use it and say, look, it's not us, look at the State Department. Under the Trump administration, they can put out, a, their, their study says, their annual report, yeah. rather, and it's it's... It's usually a bogus document. I mean, it's often been, um, you know, one-sided slams against Israel and distortion of the 
reality. It doesn't mean they can't criticize Israel. Israel makes mistakes, too, but th- this is not an issue of, of making mistakes. This is a, a, a complete distortion of of the reality. And to say that Abbas has worked to, to do it, and he c- took control of the uh, Friday sermons in the mosque when the uh, the leader at Al-Aqsa, the Imam at Al-Aqsa, talked about the slaughtering of Jews just last Friday and the, and the continuing payment of the funds and his refusal to back off of it. And I'm telling you, he this, this was planned. They were waiting for the opportunity to to explode in this way, he he wanted to threaten. He has threatened BB with breaking cooperation, and I think they were just looking for the opportunity in order to do it. Reminiscent of uh, you know the Intifada starting because Ariel Sharon visited the Temple Mount. You know, any excuse to to either incite violence or to actually be violent or to cut off ties with Israel. But they try to point to that as a provocation, which is right. also outrageous. But here's well, there's also no provocation. The, yeah, but there's there nothing. You're correct, I mean, but they're detectors. but they're saying it is. But they're saying it is. Yeah, yeah, but I'm saying metal detectors aren't even should not even be right. given an ounce of credulity as a as a, a a provocation, and and that's why the United States demanded that he end the incitement, that he uh, do with the the, the uh, Security Council back to form. You know, talked about. Um, a new threat to international peace and security, metal detectors, that's a threat to security. And the, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it sounds funny, but it's, it's ridiculous. And, and we should not uh, underestimate what this, what this means elsewhere. At the, the, in the whole Arab Muslim world, this is something that draws people into the streets. And we know in the climate now in the Middle East, all of that can have Real serious uh, ramifications. Yeah. They barricade themselves on the Al-Aqsa. They, and, you know, they started throwing stones on the people at the hotel. And and, and and frankly, it seems it encourages people, according to them at least, to walk into people's homes and, and stab people to death on a Friday night as well. Uh, that's right. And then they quote justify it, or the the um, motivation, but the motivation is a cumulative effect of all of the in, indoctrination and all the incitement. That's why it's so important to understand that it's not because they say something nasty about us. People have done that for thousands of years. But right. but then and now, we, these words have consequences. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSingle.com, on the NachumSingle Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holine is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update on this Erev Shabbos Chazon here at JM and the AM. Did you have any problem, as some uh, columnists did, with the photos from the Chalamish terror attack being published? I find it very hard to look at and very hard to, uh, you know, to see, but I think people have to understand the brutality of this murder of people sitting at a Friday night meal celebrating the birth of a grandson. That's why the door they they opened the door to a knock, and the guy was dressed in a, with the yarmulke, and I think uh, to dress to look like a religious Jew, and they let him in, and he just carried out the attack. Yeah. Uh, all right, to Jordan. Uh, do I have the story right? An Israeli security guard at the embassy is attacked, ends up killing the attacker and one other person, and then the question is what type of diplomatic immunity he has and whether he can go to Israel. Is that essentially what happened? Well, he is in Israel, and he returned. They, right, me, right, I'm saying, but they went right after it happened, then they negotiated to get him out, right? Yeah, but it wasn't just about his immunity, and there's still, it's it's still 
murky about exactly what happened, whether there was an attack or whether it was a terrorist attack or he reacted to the guy coming with a screwdriver, one of them. But was uh, that the issue that Israel just had to get him out of Jordan? Like that was the big, right. that was the big well, negotiation. The, the place was under siege and getting him out was really critical. They needed to get him out right away, and the ambassador, because there, there was they were in jeopardy. And then Jordan wanted to put him on trial, and now it's demanding that Israel put him on trial. And they will, no doubt, do a very thorough investigation. Uh, what really ticked off the king was that Netanyahu personally welcomed him when they had an understanding that they would low-key it. Ah. And, um, uh, you know, there was the picture of him sitting with him as if, he were some anti-terror hero when that may not have been the case. Got it. And um, is this? Uh, are you surprised that the king even let him go? That he wasn't, you know, it, just to satisfy his own people? I would guess, you know, more strongly trying to keep him in Jordan. Well, we have to know what the understanding was, what what conditions were set, and um, you know, the king. Is very reliant on Israel right now because of the, uh, the situation on the Golan, on the Golan. Mm. And protection. Israel, you know, helps a lot with Jordanian security, and the king and, and Netanyahu have generally had a good relationship. Uh, this, I think, set back. He was he was very upset. The uh, and he understood the danger that they were in. That people, when you have a mob like that, they could easily lynch, lead to a lynching or something, as we've seen in the past. So they moved their security forces in to protect the Israeli embassy and uh, wanted to defuse it uh, that way. And, and that's why he, I think he was more angry about the way the guy was treated when he got back. Could you address um, those of us who live directly, those of us who live in New York State, uh, now that uh, we have a senator, Senator Gillibrand, who uh, not only declares that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu does not have a plan for peace, but says she's giving the anti-BDS bill another look because she's worried about the undermining of free speech. She should read the letters from her colleagues, like Senator Cardin and others, who say that the ACLU slash others' effort to undermine the, the bill is, is misguided. It is simply outrageous. When she voted against the Iran law afterwards, she, she tried to assure us, and uh, I think that this is uh, a sign of her true colors. I don't think that there's any excuse uh, for for what she said, that she had the privilege to meet with the Prime Minister and says that he only said that he has no plan for peace and no vision for peace when when he has been pushing, trying to get and spoke for uh, about a two-state solution four or five times. He has talked about direct negotiations without conditions. He's put himself out on, on this issue, and the United States government has made clear where, who was who the obstacle uh, to peace uh, in, in the last uh, half year or, uh, and more, and the and for the senator from the United States to get up in front of an audience and to see the reaction of the young people um, at Hostess Community College in the Bronx uh, to to the question which challenged Israel and the and the BDS, and not to have used that opportunity to educate them and say, look, Israel is our greatest ally, what Israel stands for, what Israel is doing for the Syrians, what Israel is, is doing for uh, uh, others, and, and tell the story of Israel. But instead to say that she has promised that Netanyahu has no vision for peace, I mean, it's outrageous, and I hope people will let her know. Breaking. Oh, by the way, um, does it pay to also, we have to let her know, correct, and react to what she said, uh, but we always have had the impression that Senator Schumer is a mentor of hers. Would uh, it pay to to direct some comments to him as well about his junior senator, or that's not important? 
Well, he's not. I, I think that those days were over a long time ago. Remember, he came out against the Iranian right. uh, bill and, and many other things. And I, 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 he would not say a similar thing. I think it's uh, really it's, it, it stands on its own, and uh, she stands on her own, and, and she has to hear it from people. And the problem is that people get outraged. They will tell me how bad it is, but they don't tell her. Right. And that's and that's really not helpful. Uh, she has to hear it from constituents and people. She has broader aspirations than just being a senator from New York. And um, I think, you know, she has a tendency to use blue language and to be to use explosives. I think, you know, in this case, I don't suggest that people do that. I, I hope they don't. But and and address her in appropriate terminology. Right. But. She's. Uh, she has a habit of liking headlines. Hey, she likes he- headlines and she wants attention. Yeah. Um, higher aspirations. Not not much room after U.S. senator. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, there is always room at the top. But, uh, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and people have distorted images of themselves or of the political situation, and many have uh, aspirations. And you never know. You know, we had a, a president who was a senator for two years, and nobody would have predicted it. Yeah. We have a president now who who was never in government, and I don't think anybody predicted that when he started. I know the person or two who did say he'd win, but yeah, you're correct. Generally speaking, yes, I mean, uh, most people the political so. pundits I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's true. I never thought of, it's the non professionals who were right in that election. That's true. Mm-hmm. Breaking news from Israel according to Jerusalem Post, the Palestinian attempted to carry out a stabbing attack at the Gush Etzion Junction in the West Bank Friday afternoon. Their words, the West Bank. According to an army statement, the assailant arrived at the scene with a knife, ran toward IDF forces. The forces fired at the attacker. He was neutralized and reportedly died. From his wounds, uh, there was a breaking story yesterday that Prime Minister Netanyahu offered to transfer Israeli Arab towns to the Palestinians. I guess he means to the PA officially, right? In exchange for annexing settlements. Can you tell us about this? Well, there are these reports, and this is not the first time that we've seen it. That uh, uh, this is one of the schemes that's come up about um, how you lock in the blocks and that you would transfer. Uh, some of the areas. It'll define which areas. If they're giving a Fahum from where the killers came uh, to the Temple Mount, a lot of people would be in favor of it. Lieberman has called for transferring it. Others have in the past. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's an area where we know that the Islamists and the, the Muslim, the equivalent of the Muslim Brotherhood in Israel have have uh, long been active. And uh, the, but So it's not a novel idea. The question is: Was this uh, a, a part of a larger package, or was this just simple, simply an idea that was thrown out or proposed to show some change that that you give over more areas to them to be responsible for their own cities, etc., to show that the the people on the ground that there's a change. And would it have gone? As I mean, I don't even know if you know the details of the of the deal, but would it have gone to the extent of of all the blocks, all the major blocks being? Uh, incorporate an annex by Israel, or this was, you know, some of them, or a, a very small gesture, any idea? Uh, I always am skeptical of the reports that we see until we hear it, that the Prime Minister's office or somebody releases the actual document. Uh, but from what I heard, it was the blocks, the major blocks. Wow, pretty amazing. Um, a little little bit of turmoil in the White House. Do you, do you suspect that, uh, that um, the Secretary of State, excuse me, that the Attorney General might step down? 
No, I don't believe he'll step down. He may get fired, but right. he's not going to step down. And with all the chaos and, and turmoil, would you prefer if Jared Kushner, because so many people identifying with our community, would not be in the headlines as often as he is, especially regarding the Russia probe? That's not a decision. I, well, he didn't ask to be in the headlines uh, on the Russian probe or anything else. I think he, he wasn't seeking that. Uh, and uh, I think that the um, decisions like this are have to be made by the people involved to see that uh, somebody who obviously cares as he does about uh, many of the issues of concern to us is there is important. Um, I think there's there in, in general in the administration that there is a lot of lack of experience, that there is a lot of infighting, and the, and the problem is that it's all public infighting. Every administration has it, but it's really so so publicized and so leaked all the time. And I think that's why Scaramucci was so upset with the you know sourcing the leaks, uh, and the president clearly is unhappy about it. The the question about um, sessions, but. The, the fact that senators were going on record saying that if he moves against him or the special prosecutor, that they would not appoint another one, that they would not accept it, uh, has to put the White House uh, on notice. And it's it's regrettable that the, these diversions occur when you still don't have many people in place. So the people there really carry additional burdens and have so many critical issues from North Korea, Iran. We don't, we don't even talk now about all the developments in in various areas, the missile launched by Iran of a with a of a new missile, a ballistic missile, and an announcement of a new production line for the Sayat three. But they put a, a satellite up this week, and this has aroused a lot of concern. As you know, Congress moved <coughs> new sanctions against Iran. The president is going to have to make a decision about whether vetoes, but he he will most likely not because the vote in the Senate on some of these sanctions bills is ninety eight to two. And in the House, it's also 90% plus. So you have, and, and for the president to suffer another um, political defeat would be very uh, uh, unseeming right now and, and uh, add to the perceptions of, uh, uh, of the current situation. So um, I think that, that we have to focus people on the issues uh, there are people who are pressing that the United States should demand that uh, Iran give access to the IEA, the National Atomic Energy Agency, to the military sites to test them, to see before the next um, period of every 90 days the president has to certify. You know, he did it. It was done based on a, on a split decision within the in the administration. There were those who were against renewing it. There were those who were for it. The president allowed it to happen now, but made very clear that he isn't going to do it again, and he's going to put the... The Iranians detest. Iran reacts and threatens all sorts of things if they do it. But the fact is that that the that when you ask many senators and others who voted for the bill, do they have second thoughts? Many do. They don't say necessarily they would have changed their votes, but or won't admit to it. But they do admit that there are, that Iran has not complied in many respects to certainly to the spirit of the law and the new sanctions deal with their missile program, with the violation of human rights, the support for terrorism. Look what they're doing in Syria. Look what they're doing throughout the region today and around the world. Uh, so there were people who said, well, we have to fix the flaws in it. There are others who want to see it completely 
dismissed. The Europeans say that they will continue to abide by it, if, even regardless of what the United States does. But frankly, if companies have to make a choice between doing business in Iran and doing business with the United States, the choice is an easy one. Yeah, I guess. Well, in your opinion and most of our opinions, but uh, not everybody in the world agrees with that, I guess, huh? No, they would agree with it, but they have to see that that the swift sanctions and other things that uh, com- countries and companies, and some even from the United States, Boeing, others, um, should be put on notice that that the sale of, of planes, including to Asaman Airlines, which we know is servicing the uh, Iranians in in Syria, uh, they're moving ahead with their bases, they're expanding their influence, they're trying to take over additional areas and move closer to the border, the the road. Through Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon is is moving ahead, which will give them access to the whole region. I mean, Iran is not sitting on its hands during all, all of this. And um, and do they care? I know it sounds like a crazy question, but do, do they care? Do they? Who? Iran, when they hear about the sanctions, and of they, course they care. They do Their care? economy is. They, they admit that they're going to have almost eight percent inflation in the cities, but they don't talk about the high level, the true high level of unemployment. Their economy is not doing well as long as oil prices stay low. It's uh, that is their major source of income. They are are selling oil. They are selling other goods, and um, and too many companies, big companies, are have talked about investments. We don't know how many just end up being headlines and how many really uh, uh, materialize completely. But the economy and uh, is vulnerable, and the additional pressure the United States brings to bear, and we should do be more doing more with the dissident elements inside Iran, the very courageous people. Who are, are are doing things? How did how do they get away with it? How do they uh, how, how does the government not crack down on them constantly? They do, and there are many of them in jail, and they're very courageous. And sometimes, you know, they do it without their names. They don't do it publicly because then you get the besiegee come in. They go on a campus. They go anywhere else where they are. They of all respect. ages or it's youth driven. I would say it's more youth, but it's it's not limited to that. When there were bus drivers went on strike, when others when teachers went on strike, that's when these were not uh, youngsters. We know that on the campuses there is a strong foment, but frankly, they don't get any support from the West, so they put their lives on the line. And they've often told us that uh, you know they were deeply disappointed during the uh, when Colin Powell avoid. Uh, um, uh, you know, refused to support them, and when Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, refused to support them, and during the Green Revolution, we had great opportunities, and and now they feel that the West, you know, talks big, but when it comes to it, is not willing to stand with them. I want to continue on this, but first, one of our commenters on the app asks: Is there any truth that metal detectors were removed in a swap with Jordan for the prisoner? Is that possible? It's possible. I don't know exactly what they said. First of all, it was all you know. It's not, a lot of this was not writing without right. uh, discussion. But you wouldn't be two. shocked if you heard that that was true. Yeah, but I think the decision to remove it was made first. I think it, right. it really preceded it. There obviously was some discussion of things, but uh, you know, the prime minister and the king talk frequently, and uh, I, I, I believe that the decision on the um, detectors per se was made earlier. Removing the cameras. May have been an additional thing saying that they'll remove all of the stuff that they installed uh, could have been a, a pledge to the king. But I think the, the the terms here it was not in Jordan's interest to keep this and let the demonstrations escalate because that poses a threat to the king mm-hmm. as well. Right, understood. Um, Nikki Haley uh, spent some time this week 
uh, trying to encourage the UN to get serious about disarming Hezbollah and use the opportunity to explain and describe the Iranian influence with them and others in the Middle East. Is she spending an unusual amount of time on this um, at the UN or you know all UN ambassadors from the United States? You know, would would spend time. It seems to me like you know she's just not letting up, which is great. But I'm just saying that you, that you know we have somebody at the UN who's not letting up on these topics. And I think she gets more attention for what she says, and uh, speaks more forcefully. There was too often that you had mealy mouth statements uh, at the United Nations um, by Europeans, by even by America. Sometimes uh, she is speaking very directly and forcefully. Uh, we had ambassadors over the years who were more absentee. She's there and plugging away. Um, she also has aides, I think, who, who are supportive. And sometimes you've had other uh, other on the other ambassadors, uh, let's say, less supportive uh, people. So it's a combination of things that uh, and her high profile as someone who has um, consistently been out front. And and remember, you don't have Tillerson making many statements. Right. You don't have others doing it. So. Her visibility has increased. We don't even know how long Tillerson's going to last. Um, well, after this report, it raises a lot of questions. And if they hadn't doubled down, that's the problem. They should have, could have simply said, I will review it. I understand the concerns, and I will review it. Instead, the spokesman gets up there and starts trying to justify what's in this report. I think makes it all the more outrageous. And on the Hezbollah issue, sorry about that, with the Hezbollah issue with Nikki Haley, uh, I know we discussed this last week to an extent, but you still, even with this buildup and even with the recognition that uh, I, and the prominence it seems that Iran gives them, in terms of you know one of their uh, uh, one of their um, military arms or you know s- serious presence in the Middle East or representatives in the Middle East, nonetheless, you're not at the point where you're nervous that they would actually start up with Israel on the northern border. They do not want a war. That doesn't mean they won't start up. They're starting up all the time. They're building up their presence there. They're trying to encroach on the area. That's why the Russians have put up checkpoints in the region to supposedly also keep Hezbollah away, but also to assert their control. Um, the, the, the Iranians, and that means the Hezbollah and the militias and the RGC and all of their elements there, the, the tens of thousands of, of soldier fighters, terrorists that they have there, um, uh, are aligned and move and trying to consolidate their position uh, all the time, and and we see the build up and the underground facilities in in southern Lebanon, as well as now the new missile manufacturing plant underground, et cetera. Their consolidation of their position within the Lebanese government, and I think the reason why we're getting so much attention now is because there were statements by administration officials about wanting to arm uh, the Lebanese army or or talking about it as if it is still a separate entity. It is not. Hezbollah and the Lebanese army and government are one. They have, they, the, the last Lebanese war, if you remember, Israel was restricted in its response because the Lebanese army and the Lebanese government were separate, so it was, they were not punishing them, they were punishing Hezbollah. Today, they are one, and therefore, uh, the comments about somehow separating, uh, the occasion was the visit of President Hariri of uh, Lebanon to to Washington, um, occasioned some of these uh, statements. Uh, Monday night is Tish above, and as difficult as things are, and especially those of us who would like to see different uh, Harabayat, the Temple Mount, be handled differently. 
Uh, nonetheless, uh, many rabbis this week have encouraged people to visit Harabayat, obviously in the approved areas, uh, because of how important it is to show the world that it is important to us and we physically have to do so. And Malcolm, I'm sure you would agree that with all the difficult news these days, as we approach the day that uh, commemorates the anniversary of the destruction of the temple, thank God we live in a unique generation where the arrow is pointing up or we are going in the direction of actually having real sovereignty over the Temple Mount very soon. And look at all the new discoveries and everything that, that uh, again, uh, a new one this week, which we can talk about in, in the future, but talks about the the evidence of the Babylonian destruction of, of Jerusalem just days before Tisha B'Av to unearth these artifacts from the K- Kingdom of Judea and the, from the First Temple period, and the clear evidence of the destruction of the city. All of these are messages to us. People should not be dissuaded from going to Israel, going to Yerushalayim. Now, visit there. Don't don't let them, uh, by abandoning it or by making a decision not to go, where they are willing to go and, and assert, and every day, every minute, assert their control, their their uh, um, sovereignty over the site. That's what this is about. It's not about metal detectors. It's not about the cameras. It's about the right of Jews, about Israeli Jewish sovereignty and Israeli sovereignty. It's about Jewish history. It's about the Jewish faith. It's about the Jewish state. It's about the Jewish people that they have declared war on. And and we cannot be silent in the face of that. That's why these issues take on such importance and significance. And we, we cannot allow, whether it's a State Department report or anything else, just to pass. And when a senator makes comments like that, they have to hear. And if they don't hear from everybody, then we all become complicit in in uh, in these violations and, and really horrific acts. So the, the ultimate lesson, though, is that the one key element is the unity of the Jewish people. And at a time when we have issues that are dividing Jews, we have to re-emphasize the unity of the Jewish people and our unity with uh, with Israel. I thank you. I'll I'll take your words to heart. Heading to Israel Thursday and Friday, we'll be there uh, broadcasting from Israel. We'll return with the weekly update two weeks from today. Have an easy fast and a wonderful Shabbos. You too, until Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update Friday mornings here at JM in the AM. Uh, this uh, time each and every Friday, every era of Shabbos, with great pleasure we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomri Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Well, for you it's good morning, and Baruch Hashem, for me it's good afternoon. Calling and speaking from Beit Shemesh. And the first thing I want to say is amen v'amen to Malkin Homeline's words. Everybody should come. You're coming home. And that's so significant. I always tell you when I speak on Erev Shabbos, it's not just that the flower stands all over. I'm just going to tell you one thing which is so exciting. My children live in Beit Shemesh, and now they're not only working on Beit Shemesh Gimel, but you should know that the government has approved that there's going to be a Beit Shemesh Dalit, and there's going to be a Beit Shemesh Hay, and they have given the approval for... 17,000 came Yerbu new apartments. 530 dunams have been set aside for business and hotels. And what's happening is, and Beshemesh is basically doubling in size, Baruch Hashem, in the next coming years. I want you, if you can, 
to honor yourself and go and take out, bring to the table tonight the Mishnah Brura Chelek Beis, and you're going to open up to Reish Chof Dalid, chapter 224, and you're going to go to paragraph Yud 10, and with a bracha of, of shame v'malchus, without shame v'malchus, as you'll see in the Mishnah Brura, even if we follow at the moment the Prima Godim that says you make this bracha without shame v'malchus today, just listen to these words. Horoe bate Yisrael, b'yishuvan. When you see the literally houses, the development of the Jewish people when they are being returned to Eretz Yisrael, and whether it refers to Botekinesios, etc. There's a bracha that is made, and that is Matziv Gevul Almana, which means that he is establishing and broadening the boundary, that which was unfortunately of the Almana, the widow, Monday night at the very beginning of Eicha, we're going to say about the ear, Yerushalayim, Hoyesoke Almana, Loalenu, like a widow, and there's no question about it. We are mourning for the Beis Amigdosh, and until we have the Beis Amigdosh, it's Ikar Choser Menasefer. Literally, we are missing the most important part of our peoplehood. As we say in the Aftorah and the Bracha that follows the Aftorah, Tzion Kihi Beis Chayenu. Literally, the Beis Amigdash is the source of our life, religious and physical as well. All the sorrows that we have, Lo'alenu, in Eretz Yisrael and all over the world. All kinds of sorrows is because we don't yet have the Beis Hamikdash. However, we should realize, and it's not a contradiction in terms, that at the same time, this privilege to be this incredible growth and development in Eretz Yisrael. I'd like to, at this point, first talk about, unfortunately, this coming Monday night, Tuesday, Tisha B'Av, which at the moment looks like it might have to be a fast day. You think I'm joking when I say that? I'm telling you, I promise you, where does Yudin have the chutzpah to use that word? Because the Navi Zachariah and the Navim don't lie in chapter 8 promises that Tisha B'Av will one day be a holiday. And that's something that we have to keep in mind. It's crazy. We say in Echa, and as a result, amazing, this coming Monday afternoon, no Tachanon, as if it were in Erev Yom Tov. We are such an incredible people, and it's not a contradiction. On the one hand, we're going to sit down, we're going to mourn, we're going to have a Suda Mavsekis, as we'll talk about in a minute, and we're not going to greet each other on Tisha B'Av. We're going to go through Lo'alenu, another year of Kinos. However, at the same time, we have the ability in our minds and hearts to recognize and realize that, wow, this will be someday a holiday, and it's not a contradiction in terms. Okay, so here we go this Monday afternoon, as we said, no tachanon, different opinions as to whether or not you could or should be learning Torah 
other parts other than the parts that you can learn on Tisha B'Av. Listen carefully. There is what is known as the Su'udo Hamafsekes, right? Which is akin, think about it, lo'aleinu, to the Sudas Havra'a. When you come back from the cemetery, those that are sitting shiva, so what do they have? You have that bagel, you have that piece of bread that's round in the hard-boiled egg. And what do we do this coming Monday afternoon? You have your supper and eat that so you should be able to fast. And then, you, if you can... Do it this way, go to David Mincha, then come home, wash again, and sit down by yourself and take a piece of bread and a hard-boiled egg and just a little bit of water to drink with it, etc. And this is your Sudam Afsekes. And for this, you can still wear your shoes because you don't have to take your shoes off until um, sunset. But the idea is that this is a preparation for the, the Su'uda itself is a Su'uda's Tishabad. It's a preparation for, unfortunately, the, uh, the, 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 the day of mourning which is coming. Now, unless you say, I'm accepting my fast with me, try in your own mind to say I'm not, and so until the fast begins, you can eat even after, you know, the Suda uh, Hamafsekis. Okay, needless to say that um, uh, at this Suda Hamafsekis, when certainly we are not eating meat, and even the Sephardim, who were more lenient this past week, the week of Shavuot um, Shachalbo, we don't eat meat, um, and uh, we don't drink wine, except if there is a, quote-unquote, Sudas Mitzvah. Okay, Tisha B'Av is like Yom Kippur, in the sense that there are five um, Inuyim, Five restrictions which apply to Tishabav because, and you should be aware of this, there were five tragedies that occurred on Tishabav. Number one, this was the night that the Jewish people in the midbar, in the desert, when the spies came back and we believed them, he said, can't even say the words, Vayimosu, David Amelech says in Tilim 106, Be'eretz Chemda. We said, thanks, but no thanks. We didn't want to go with Eretz Yisrael. We were afraid. We rejected Eretz Yisrael. Ouch. That's the first sin, that, and that's the first calamity and tragedy which befell on Tisha B'Av. The second and third is that the first base of Migdash was destroyed on Tisha B'Av. The second base of Migdash was destroyed on Tisha B'Av. As the rabbis tell us that God said to the Jewish people, you cried for naught and I'll give you what to cry about. The city of Betar was captured and tens of thousands of Jews were killed on and starting from the capture of De Betar on Tisha B'Av. And finally, the Roman, Tunis Rufus, plowed the site of the Beisam Migdash. Okay? Uru, Uru, Ara Right? Literally such hatred that they had. But ask yourself, where is Rome today? Oh, yes, they're the Roman numerals. And just look what and where Klal Yisrael and Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael is today. Powerful. Okay, the five restrictions of 
Tishabov are one, eating and drinking. Clearly, whoever is to fast, fasts. Pregnant women, first of all, consult with your Rav doctor and no heroics if you are to begin the fast. No heroics. Everybody else, you are to fast and recognize that the fasting is part of a very important process that we as a people have been doing. It literally keeps alive within us the very, very powerful yearning, longing for Zion, for the Beis HaMikdash. Unlike Yom Kippur, that if one has to, has to eat on Yom Kippur, there's a shiurim, a certain amount, you eat, you wait, etc., you drink, you wait. No, this doesn't apply to Tish Ab'av. If you have to eat doctor's orders, eat. If you have to drink doctor's orders, drink. If you have to drink, don't eat. Do just that, drink. The idea is that we, unfortunately, at this point here, want to fast so that we are able to feel the day that we and he, capital H, mourn. That's a very important point, that give out. We say when someone is sitting shiva, hamokom yinachem eschem. And I really believe that on Tisha B'Av, we say that to Hashem. Because he too is mourning, as the Gemara, the big beginning of Brachos, Gimbal Amaralev says that literally every single day he mourns for his children in his base Hamikdash. First thing is we can't eat and drink. Second thing is that we are not to, what you would call, anoint yourself with any kind of cosmetics, lotions, which is other than for, quote-unquote, health reasons. Third thing is that we are not to wear leather shoes. And the fourth thing is we are not to bathe. And the fifth thing is that marital relations are uh, prohibited on Tish Ab'av. And let me just say a few other things very quickly. You can't uh, take a shower, bath, night of Tish Ab'av, on the day of Tish Ab'av, we wash our hands as we do every morning with a cup, right, Negovasa, right, left, right, left, right, left, to the knuckles, and that's it. Take your fingers and uh, rub off, you know, some of the water, and uh, then put your fingers through your eyes, and that's it. Should you get your hands dirty at all during the day, should you use the bathroom, by all means you can wash your hands again to your knuckles, and that's it. Um, and understand that um, all this is to help us appreciate this day. From the letter of the law, children under bar and bas mitzvah do not have to fast. It's not like Yom Kippur, where a year or two before, we train them to fast. Here, we don't want to train them, because please God, there's not going to be a, a Tisha B'Av of a uh, fast day. There's going to be a holiday. So from the letter of the law, they don't have to. If they want to show that they're too, they too are part of the community, so in that regard, I would say, you know, we would allow them as well. What else is prohibited on Tisha B'Av? The learning of Torah, which has such a powerful idea 
ask yourself, do I really rejoice when I study Torah? And if I don't, then that's one of the things I have to work on. Because otherwise, why can't I study Torah on Tish Ba'av? David HaMelech, in chapter 19 of Tillam, says it so powerfully, Bekudei Hashem Yesharim, Mesamchei Leiv, that the laws of God are just and proper, and they literally gladden the heart. So one can study on Tisha B'Av and learn those sad things, commentaries about the destruction, the Gemara, you know, about the destruction in Gittin and in Sanhedrin. So these are the things that one can do. Understand that on Tisha B'Av, the night of Tisha B'Av, if one can, one should alter their sleeping habits. And if they usually sleep with uh, two pillows, let them do with one. If they do with one, try without. And uh, the idea is that uh, we don't greet one another on Tisha B'Av until mid the day, until Chatzos on Tisha B'Av. Number one, the parochas is pushed aside in our Botekanesios. The shul itself is mourning and uh, we don't greet one another until mid the day. Ideally, you should be in shul. And many, many shuls nowadays explain the kinos on Tisha B'Av morning. So it makes it much more understandable. The kinos themselves are poetic expressions of that which we have lost. And without commentaries in whatever language you're comfortable with, Hebrew, English, etc., you're not going to really understand them. It's very hard. And what are they alluding to? And that's why many, many shuls have rabbanim who will explain the kinos, and that's what you should ideally be doing this coming uh, Tuesday until approximately 1 o'clock. I believe 102 in the New York area. And then after that, we sit on a regular uh, chair, Amazing. Why? This is such an important point, because it was in the afternoon that the Romans, Yamach Shemam, put the uh, Beis HaMikdash on fire. So you would say, my goodness, that should be the time when we should have the greatest availus. However, the rabbis understood that it was against a building, right? Avonim. It was a Eitzim va'avonim, literally wood and stone that went up in fire, and not, thank God, the Jewish people. Pinch yourself that you are a remnant of that time. We don't put on our talis and tefillin in the morning on Tisha B'Av. We do put them on at Mincha time. Very important to know. And just understand that there's a Kriyasa Torah on Tuesday morning from the Eschanan Kisolid Bonim Uvnei Bonim. There's a Kriyasa Torah in the afternoon, um, on Tisha B'Av afternoon. And just be aware of one thing, that because the Beis HaMikdash was ablaze until midday of the 10th, the custom, certainly among Ashkenazim, is that we don't treat drink wine, we don't eat meat until midday of the 10th, and we don't wash clothing until midday of the 10th, and we don't listen to music until midday of the 10th. And I pray that these laws that we review today, that's it. Let them be in
the archives, hopefully, please God, next year, no more. I just want to share with you one very, two quick ideas regarding uh, Devarim. Listen carefully. An interesting point, and that is as follows. In the book of Devarim, there are 200, the last 200 mitzvahs of the Torah, starting with mitzvah 414, which is, there are two mitzvahs in Parshas Devarim, 414, 415. Both of them are not individual mitzvahs, they're communal mitzvahs. A, to appoint judges who are knowledgeable. B, that once you have a judge, he should not be intimidated by those who come before him to favor the wealthy, the this, the that, etc. Okay, stand your ground. That are the two mitzvahs. Now, I want to show something very interesting. Starting next week, in Voes Hanan, Shabbos Nachamu, there are so many mitzvahs. The Aseris Adibros, Shema, Tefillin, Mezuzah, all these things you have next week. Why? I want to say that the Torah itself is giving us the Nechama next week of all the mitzvahs, like Mesam Chelev. And this week's parsha, only two mitzvahs, and none for any of the individuals, just that. The Torah itself is mourning with us by, quote, giving us a very small number of mitzvahs. That's point one. Secondly, as we know, the parsha begins with Moshe, rebuking the Jewish people. And that's something very important, that at times a parent, a teacher, a rebbe, a rav and a shul has to rebuke the people. But there's a way to do it. Now watch. Dizahav. Moshe says to the Jewish people, now there's no place, Dizahav. Moshe's reminding them of the Zahav, the golden calf. And Rashi says that at the same time that he reminds them of the golden calf, he basically turns to Hashem and says, Hashem, you know what? It was partially your fault. What does that mean? Because they had so much gold that they took out of Egypt and the booty by the Yamsuf, once they had so much gold, they had what to do with it, and they made an ego with it, and it went to their head. The idea being that when you have a buck in your pocket, then I, I, I become important. Once the I becomes important, then there's room for idolatry. And that's what happened over here. So Moshe, at the same time that he rebuked him, was also the Malamit Schus on their behalf. Which leads me to the key point of that when anybody rebukes, there's a way of doing it. And what does that mean? Take out the book of Proverbs, Mishlei, and turn to chapter 9, verse 8. Easy to find, 9, 8. And what does it say there? The wise King Solomon says, don't rebuke the, the person who is a, literally a fool, lest he come to hate you, because he doesn't appreciate that you're rebuking him for his own good. However, if you give Musa to a wise person who realizes you mean it for his benefit, ah, I'll love you. I remember seeing years ago, I think, by the Shalom HaKadosh. Very powerful. Watch. Al-Tochach, don't rebuke somebody by calling them a let's, by saying you're no good. Why? If you put somebody down when you rebuke them, they're going to what? Quote, hate you. If you rebuke the person,
loving way. And that's what we learn from Moshe Rabbeinu. And so, unfortunately, as we go into another Tisha B'Av, the idea has to be, sure, there are differences between all Jews, but let's focus not on that which divides us, but let's focus on, thank God, there's so much that unites us. And Amir Hashem, I hope and pray that next year we will all be celebrating Tisha B'Av exactly where I am today in Eretz Yisrael. Shabbat Shalom to all. J.M. in the A.M. My thanks to Rabbi Yudin, and we wish him a wonderful Shabbat in the Holy Land. Uh, pretty remarkable. We'll, of course, be there Thursday and Friday next week broadcasting from Israel uh, just before Shabbos Nachamu, wishing everybody, of course, an easy and meaningful fast. J.M. in the A.M., and uh, I have been mentioning, of course, all week, and <laughs> he has been speaking with us all week. Rabbi Beryl Wine has been the... Uh, focus of the bulk of our spoken word programming uh, during uh, uh, during the nine days, as has been a tradition. I think Rabbi Wine has joked with me in the past that we make a real star out of him uh, nine days out of the year. <laughs> and he is speaking, Rabbi Wine is speaking this coming Sunday night, 8 p.m. in Rabbi Newberger's synagogue, Congregation Beth Abraham in Bergenfield, New Jersey. It begins at 8 o'clock this Sunday. The topic, Destruction and Redemption, the month of Av, in our world. An absolute honor to welcome Rabbi Burl Wine to JM and the AM. Rabbi Wine, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so much we have learned. We The bulk of our programming this week was your lectures on Europe and the Jews. Uh, yes. From a religious perspective, Christian, uh, Catholics, Protestants, etc. And uh, then, of course, from a historical perspective uh, in terms of the um, uh, European attitude. One of the things you pointed out is that if we expect that Europe's attitude toward Jews and Israel is any different than it was hundreds or thousands of years ago, then we are greatly mistaken. That's true. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Uh, you cannot uproot 2,000 years of uh, culture and habit uh, with a wave of the hand. And uh, it's, uh, to a great extent, it's in their blood. And uh, because of that... Uh, uh, they, uh, there's a great deal of resentment. There's always been resentment of the Jews in Europe, and there's the resentment of Israel. Israel is too successful. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They, they have no right to, uh, you know, to, to all of this. Right. And uh, that resentment uh, feeds on the culture that they were raised in. It must frustrate some of the European leadership when they see African countries and others literally, you know, come to the feet of Israel, begging for help, for technology, for money, and any resources they can give them. Well, that's right. It's, again, uh, it, it, it does not fit the narrative or the script that they were raised upon. Right. And uh, we know from ourselves that if things don't fit our preconceived notions— we're very fr frustrated. We don't know how to deal with it. Now, before we get to Sunday night, and I'll give you a chance in a minute to discuss that, of course, uh, one other point. We uh, Today, uh, and, and the truth is we're not going to have a chance to finish it because you're now in competition with yourself <laughs> now that you're on the air. Um, uh, today we were listening to your lecture on Europe and Israel today, and, of course, this founding of the State of Israel was a large part of that. I know it's very hard to do this in 60 seconds, but whatever you can, I'd greatly appreciate it. When we see the U.N. today, and we know that the U.N. is not voting 
anything favorably toward Israel today. How does one explain outside of God and miracles that the UN voted for the partition plan in 1947? Uh, The outside is the only reason. (laughs) Uh, The outside is the only reason that in the, the beginning of the Cold War, Russia and the United States voted together. Uh, and from then on, it never happened for 40 years. There are so many uh, illogical things that shaped the creation of the State of Israel and that shape it today that one has to be uh, almost blind to uh, not to realize that something unusual is happening here and that heaven plays a role. That's for sure. Sunday night, Congregation Beth Abraham or a Newburger Synagogue in Bergenfield, New Jersey. You'll be there at 8 p.m. The topic is Destruction and Redemption, the month of Av in our world. Could you give us a short preview of Sunday night's lecture? I didn't figure out yet what I'm going to say, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, basically there are levels of uh, destruction and there are levels of redemption. And uh, I think we're at a level of redemption uh, that the process is beginning and how we should be able to view it, and that by seeing the levels of destruction, we will get an idea about the levels of redemption. Well, nothing like a hopeful lecture, Erev Tishabov, and I'm not kidding about that. Um, so uh, everybody in Bergenfield, New Jersey, and those surrounding areas, you're very lucky. Rabbi Wine is coming to your neighborhood 8 p.m. this coming Sunday night on that very topic. Everybody should enjoy Roy Wine, a wonderful uh, opportunity. I'm so glad we had a chance to speak. I hope you're doing Thank do- you. And Shabbat Shalom and Hatzlacha Rabbah. Tadaraba and Hatzlacha Rabbah to you as well. Friday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures and uh, his speaking engagements 1 800 499 WEIN and rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. It looks like we're not going to have an opportunity to finish the lecture, so we'll, I think we'll start month, excuse me, we'll start Monday morning with that final lecture in the series. And then we'll continue with the Tishabov and Erev Tishabov appropriate uh, lectures uh, after that. I think that's how we'll handle it. Uh, don't forget the bake sale to support the Lone Soldier Center happens at Breezy's. Today from 10 to 1, 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. Breezy's, 10 to 1, 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. Don't forget. Uh, the tour of Kivrei Tzadikim is coming Sunday at Washington Cemetery starting at 1030. Uh, you can call 718-690-1534, 690-1534. The Project Witness documentary, Hidden, is being shown in Teaneck tomorrow night. Congregation B'nai Yashurin, West Englewood Avenue, tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Sunday night, a Project Witness will show hidden at the Young Israel of Lawrence on Spruce Street in Cedarhurst at 8.15 p.m. Information, 718-WITNESS, 718-WITNESS, and uh, projectwitness.org. Don't forget the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation has their Amuna for Life presentation with a very, very distinguished um, a roster of rabbis, Rabbi Kamenetsky, Rabbi Biederman, Rabbi Dunner, Rabbi Shapiro, Rabbi Mansour, Rabbi Wallerstein, Rabbi Asher. Uh, Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, it's called Emuna for Life. It's being shown in many, many locations around the world. Go to go to uh, powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org, and you get information about where it's being shown where you are, powerofspeech.org for information about that. 
Uh, don't forget that Charlie Harari is going to be hosting the Missing Link uh, 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday with a distinguished panel. It is a perfect way for you and Project Inspire to wrap up the fast. Uh, the question is, what is the missing link to bringing the Gula? You could answer this question. Radio at projectinspire.com. Radio at projectinspire.com. And they welcome your answers to that question. Um, don't forget, tefillah at the Isaiah Wall. Bring your talus and tefillin. Tefillah at the Isaiah Wall. Mincha. This coming Tuesday, 2 p.m., Isaiah Wall is on 1st Avenue, across the street from the UN at 43rd Street. Come, be there at 2 o'clock, perfect lunch hour time for those who are uh, working in Manhattan and um, have an opportunity to take a lunch break. You have an opportunity to be there this coming uh, Tuesday on Tisha B'Av and to participate in the service. Again, bring your talus and tefillin. It's this coming Tuesday, and uh, that's happening uh, at the Isaiah Wall, 1st Avenue at 43rd Street on the west side of 1st Avenue. You will see a gathering there. Uh, go and uh, be part of that very special service. Um, uh, our schedule is relatively simple. Sunday morning, Matis hosts JM Sundays. We get closer and closer to Tishabov. Monday, I am here on Erev Tishabov, and I just discussed how we're going to handle the lectures on Monday morning. I am here on Erev Tishabov Monday morning. And then Tuesday, Rabbi Goldwasser and I will conduct a, a Kinnis service uh, this Tuesday morning at 7.30 during JM and the AM. Again, Kinnis service this coming Thursday morning, excuse me, this coming Tuesday morning, 7.30 here at JM and the AM. Wednesday, Matis will host the Stories of Rabshoma Kalbach, our 10th of Av special. And then Thursday, we're with Yom NCSY in Israel. And Friday, we're with the Israel NCSY summer programs. Uh, looking forward to that journey. And then, of course, Shabbos Nachamu. Time to say good Shabbos. It's Journeys at JM in the AM. There's nothing left to do Go on home and 
Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSingle.com, on the NachumSingle Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. By the way, those of you who um, live in New York State, those of you who live in New York State, grab a pen very quickly. Here is Senator Gillibrand's phone number if you want to um, uh, speak with her and her staff about her statements regarding BDS and her statements regarding the Prime Minister of Israel and the peace plan. 202-224-4451. Again, if you're a New York State resident, Senator Gillibrand's number, 202-224-4451. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Matis has JM Sunday. That's going to be this Sunday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Monday, we're back, Erev Tishabov, And, of course, Tuesday, our Tishabov service begins live at 7.30 Eastern Time. Make sure to be tuned in. Have a fabulous Shabbos, wonderful weekend, and um, and um, until Monday morning, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.